0: Okay, Boker Tov, good morning. I want to thank our Parsha series for the year, generously sponsored by Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of David Grossman, their beloved father and grandfather. Our learning is Le'iloui Nishmas, Dava Be'Menachem Manush. Also, today's class in particular is sponsored by Mrs. Golda Sadowski in honor of her dear uncle and aunt, Rabbi Dr. Edward and Doris Kurtzer, our good friends. So, beautiful. Thank you for that sponsorship. Beautiful members of our community and source of inspiration. Two housekeeping notes before we begin. One you may have seen when you walked in this morning, the new BRS Cafe. Please frequent it, enjoy it. Who needs Dunkin' Donuts? Got coffee and pastries and fruit. So please uh, help support the shul by uh, enjoying it and help support the beautiful family running it, the Len family. Number two, some of you asked about the Friends of BRS. We are bringing it back. But you'll hear about it this next week or the week after because we are going to be running an amazing, exciting raffle with phenomenal prizes. By becoming a member of Friends of BRS, you will automatically be entered into the raffle. Of course, you could up it and get more raffle tickets, you'll hear more about it. So those of you who are eager and knocking down the door to show your support and appreciation of BRS, if you're not members for all the programs and activities in Parsha class, have no fear, we will find you. Okay. <laughs> Parsha's told us, page 124 in the article Stone, Chumash. The Eila told us Yitzhak ben Avram, Avram holy as Yitzhak. We know we pick up the parsha from last week, and how do we know that? Because the parsha begins with the letter Vav, ve And these are the toldos of Yitzhak, the son of Avram. Avram is holy as Yitzhak. Of course, the famous question, the obvious question is the redundancy. If Yitzhak is the son of Avram, why does the Torah have to go out of its way to tell me that Avram, in fact is the father of Yitzchak. Don't we already know that? So Rashi tells us that the reason is, Rashi tells us, the reason is, Because the cynics and scoffers of the generation suggested that maybe in fact Yitzchak is not the son of Avram. They lived together for many years, Avram and Sarah. They were married how many years before they had their child? Almost 75. I don't even know what number or metal or mineral anniversary that is. (laughs) So Hashem made Yitzchak the spitting image of Avram. One of my wife's favorite hobbies is trying to figure out who the baby looks like. Any baby. they look like the mother, the father, which grandparent, which side. When everyone looked at Yitzchak, nobody had a doubt. Nobody nobody uh, debated. It was obvious. Who does Yitzchak look like? He's the spitting image of his father. He looks like Avram's twin. Why? Why? So not only was Yitzchak the son of Avram, but Avram. And Rashi tells us that the Torah is going out its way to, so to say, waste space by telling us this in order to debunk, in order to respond, in order to reject the cynical suggestion of the Litzanei Ador. And, of course, you can't help but be bothered and wonder why the Torah would need to do such a thing. Why would the Torah have to go out of its way to address the cynics and scoffers? Who cares what they have to say? Haters will hate. Who cares about haters? Avraham haters. And they looked at Avimelech and they suggested he must be the father. Sarah had infidelity. Sarah was disloyal to Avram. So number one, who cares what they have to say? But number two, and moreover, their argument doesn't even make any sense. Why? What do we know about Avram? If Avram and Sarah together for seventy-five years don't have a child, what do we know that would make us assume that Avram was not the source of the infertility? What do we know? He has a son, he has Yishmael. So why would a cynical, even a cynical person, look at the situation and say, hmm, Avram and Sarah don't have a child at 75 years, Sarah finally has a child, it must be Avimel. What do you mean it must be Elas. Avram didn't have a problem. He fathered Yishmael. So the argument, the cynicism, doesn't even make sense. And why would Hashem make a miracle that Yitzchak looked exactly like Avram? And that's no less than a miracle. That's why Rashi's telling it to us. That's why the pasuk uses the extra language, Avram, holy is Yitzchak. Hashem has to go out of its way to address cynics and scoffers. Who cares? The answer is, you see from here how powerful cynicism is. You see just how pernicious Leitzanei Hador can be. That the haters, the cynics, the scoffers, the people who mock and ridicule within any community can be so devastatingly dangerous and negative, that negativity can destroy. Just dismiss it, ignore it. Why do you have to address negativity? Why do you have to address ridicule? And the answer is because a suspends the rules of nature. He makes a miracle. Because if he doesn't, if he leaves it unanswered, then the Laitzani Ador are such a powerful and destructive force, they could have such a negative impact. Rabbi Soloveitchik addresses the Medrash in a very, very different way. I may have shared it with you before, but it's worth repeating. The classic understanding is what we just said, that they looked at Avram and they said, look at that old man, 99 years old. I mean, seriously. Could he father a child, even with the advent of modern medicine and technological breakthrough? But could Avram father a child? And therefore, Hashem made it obvious Yitzchak was Avram's son. They looked exactly like. That's the simple way to understand it. But Rabbi Salavitchik, in one of the Chamesh Drashos, in one of the five famous talks he delivered to Mizrahi, he says the cynics didn't doubt Avram's physical ability to father a child. That was not what they were challenging here, that Avram could not be the biological father. They were challenging something altogether different, and I think this is very relevant and very important for our time. They were doubtful that an old man with old, outdated ideas could communicate it to a young person from a new generation. 99 years old, like, you know, even my kids, I don't consider myself so old, but they'll tell me, you think that way because you're from the olden days. That's the words they use, you're from the olden days. And I have to tell you something, that the world is moving so quickly, so radically fast, that the truth is I am from the olden days. I can't explain to my kids that when Jehovah and I were dating, There was no cell phone. So in between when I left where I was leaving and got to where I was going, we couldn't talk. We couldn't text. There was no ways to redirect me if I got lost. We're from another world and another generation. We're from an altogether different time. And of course we've adapted and we've learned and hopefully we have still much in common. But in many ways, we're from another generation. And that's at my young spry age. So imagine Avram Avinu, 99 years old, The cynics and scoffers of Leitzanei Hador said, old man, you've been standing on that soapbox preaching this radical monotheism. But you know, it doesn't speak to the young millennials. It doesn't speak to the young generation. It doesn't speak to a world of social media and Fortnite. It doesn't speak to kids who live on technology. And as much as Avram had revolutionized the world and transformed countless individuals from paganism to ethical monotheism, there remained Leitzanei Hador. Whenever you have success, whenever you have introduced light to the darkness, there's also an equal opposite force that rises to match it. So the L'tzani adore, the cynics who said that'll never work out, that program is stupid, this doesn't appeal, what do you sell on fire? They try to extinguish the fire that people create. They couldn't imagine Avram could successfully father a Yitzchak. How could an old man with extreme ideas inspire a son to embrace his legacy? and to follow his footsteps and to live his lifestyle. It's impossible. It doesn't speak to them. Shabbos and Kashrus and Tefillin and Talmud Torah. It doesn't speak to the generation who are enlightened and progressive and who've expanded their minds and broadened their ideas. How could that old archaic, how could those traditions and how could that lifestyle possibly speak to them? Let me read to you Rabbi Soloveitchik's words. People laughed at the event. They didn't believe Yitzchak would inherit Avram. That he, a young lad of the new generation, would continue to carry Avram's visions and laws, and that he also would engage in building altars and calling in the name of Hashem. They laughed at Avram's dreams that his son would give his life for Torah and fight for the sanctity of Avram's house. The scoffer said, Sarah conceived from Avimelech. Others claim they brought themselves a foundling from a marketplace. It's impossible to pass on Avram's outlet, the mitzvahs of Avram's statutes and laws, to the modern generation, to young Yitzchak who fights with a rifle, works in laboratories, and thinks in modern categories of thought. When Avram dies, people said his entire philosophy will perish. His altars will be dismantled. His Shulchan Aruch will be eaten by moths. And all trace of his life will vanish, just as the grass will grow over his grave. And Rabbi Salavitcher continued the same theme throughout our Parsha. He saw this theme emerging as well later in the story of when Avram passes, the plishtim fill in the, the wells that Avram had dug. And Yitzhak, what does he do? He redigs the very same wells. Difficult and arduous process. And he gives them the exact same names. He calls them the same names as his father. And we read this Parsha, and every year we raise the same question, not we, collectively we, everyone learning the Parsha. That we say our Shemona Esra every day, we begin Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Okay, Avram, okay, Yitzhak, okay, Yaakov. And we have the big three, our forefathers, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. But you know what the Torah say for Barishas is replete with stories about Avram. We understand his legacy, we can feel his impact, we know his influence. Stories filled with Yaakov and his progeny and his leadership, and his struggles, and his breakthrough. Who's Yitzhak? When you say Elokei Yitzhak, and we're trying to tap into the Yitzhak inside us, every time I, when I try to concentrate on Shemona Ezra, when I say Elokei Avram, I'm thinking of the God of, of Chesed, and Avram, and how do I relate to Avram, and in what ways my life is similar to Avram, the God of Yitzhak. In what way am I similar? Is my life similar to Yitzchak? Look, hey, Yaakov, I'm trying to tap into their experience that's shared with me. Their qualities and their attributes and their traits that I relate to or I want to identify with. And using that to their life to connect with Hashem. That's how we're beginning our Amidah. So Avram, I know what to think about. Yaakov, I know what to think about. What in the world am I thinking about with Yitzchak? The big three. We have so little. He literally barely speaks. We have so little dialogue. And we have so little narrative about Yitzchak. Who is Yitzchak? And why are we learning about him? And why does he qualify to be one of the big three? And what are we supposed to be thinking about when we say okay Yitzchak? All very important questions. And the answer clearly is, it's brought by many, Yitzchak is the ultimate role player. Yitzchak is that link in the chain who hands the baton from Avram to make sure that it gets to a Yaakov. And we live in a world that says, who is a Yitzchak? We dismiss him. He didn't have so many followers on, on Facebook. He didn't have as many on Instagram. He wasn't an influencer. Yitzhak wasn't even on social media. People didn't know his name. He wasn't in the spotlight. And you know what his major contribution is? He redigs the. Ver- he can't dig new wells. So the plishtim filled in the wells of your father. So the wells of your father are old. They're outdated. They were filled in. They were deleted. They're purged. So dig new wells, find a new vocabulary, communicate his messages in a new way and across a new medium. What are you digging in the same wells? And the answer is, that's also greatness. The role player who simply keeps the traditions alive, the role player who's a link in that chain of transmission, who doesn't need to make world peace or find a cure for cancer or do something radical, who doesn't garner a spotlight, isn't in the limelight, and doesn't measure his worth by how many followers or likes or retweets or Instagram, I don't even know what they're called, followers that you have. Yitzchak doesn't have, by any of those measures, Yitzchak, excuse me for saying it, is a gornish. By those false measures that we've created today, Yitzchak is a gornish. and the Torah is telling us that's not the measure of meaning. And that's not the measure of purpose. Yitzchak is that role player, he gets it done. And this is very, very significant because he specifically does not find a new medium and a new language and doesn't have to be in the spotlight. He is satisfied with redigging the wells of his father. He's satisfied with taking the influence of his mother and his father Yitzchak, the legacy of an Avram and Sarah, and living it in his life in his own quiet way, but a way that determines that there is a continuity. And there's nothing short of heroism in that. Have we not seen that with a generation of survivors from the Holocaust? many of whom did make radical contributions and build great edifices literally and and figuratively, but many of whom simply kept Judaism going. They were the yitzhak who were the bridge from another world and a previous generation to what we have today. And God forbid we'd look at their lives and see it as a failure because they didn't emerge as something major and radical, simply being that link in the chain, redigging those wells, calling them the same name, making sure there is a continuity. Because I have to tell you, with all the influencers and with all the Jewish celebrities, we have a 70% intermarriage rate. And we are assimilating and disappearing. And I would argue not for now that there's a radical assimilation taking place even within the Torah and Orthodox community of our values and of our lifestyle in many different ways. We are observant assimilated Jews. And therefore, we should not minimize or dismiss the people who simply redug the wells and called them the same names and kept that value system and that legacy and those lifestyles very much alive. That was Yitzchak's greatness. When you need something to think about when you say, okay, Yitzchak, you think about simply getting through the day and remaining a Torah-true Jew and raising children and grandchildren and ensuring there is a continuity of our people and of our values. <coughs> and that's the meaning, the Rav says, of what it means, Yitzchak redug the wells. He saw the conflict between the Plishnim and Yitzchak as symbolic of the doubts and the cynicism surrounding Avram's philosophy and worldview. They filled in the wells of Avram because they thought nobody would be interested in them anymore. These are outdated, expired ideas. And Yitzchak came along and he redug them and he said, No, Torah's messages are timeless. Our values are eternal and immortal. They are relevant and they are the answer in each and every generation. He redugged the wells and he gave them the same name and he made this statement and he affirmed that they are not part of the past, but they are what we need to ensure a future. And the Rav's interpretation, which was offered in the 1960s, is so much more true today. When you look at the Pew study results and you look at what's going on all around us, the Leitzane Hador, who's winning? The Leitzane Hador or Yitzhakavinu? Avinu? The cynics and scoffers who are radically trying to change who we are and what we believe or have walked away from it altogether, who see it as no longer relevant, who see it as not meeting the measure of, of civil rights and who see us, the Torah, as being something which is judgmental, the Torah as something which they can have no part of, or Yitzchak Avinu, who's who's, living, who's winning? Let me just end this section by reading to you one more paragraph from the Rav. Yitzchak dug again and he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. The same Gemara, the same Shulchan the same Shabbos, the same laws of divorce. Who could have foreseen that the young modern Yitzchak would also say that a divorcee is forbidden to a priest? that he would demand a kosher kitchen and fight for religious education. Who could have guessed that he would speak with the same language that old Avram spoke as the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, the of Vilna, as Rav Chaim of Valazhin. That Yitzchak embraced, and we see there is this battle, but Yitzchak is very, very much alive. And that is our mission, it is not necessarily to measure and to live up to the Avram and the Yaakov, to be satisfied to live the life of the Yitzchak. Ve'elah told us Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram holy to Yitzchak. Yitzhak embraced the legacy of his father, and it's up to us to take that baton and to continue to pass it and to pay it forward. But here's another interpretation of what it means. Avram holid is Yitzhak, That Rashi says Yitzhak was the spitting image of Avram. The Gemara actually learns from here, many know this Gemara, that if you have a need and you find someone else, who has the same need, if you daven for them, you're ne'en etchila. How do we know that? From where do we learn that? We learn it from Avram and Avimelech. Because when Avram and Sarah go visit Avimelech, and Avimelech is struck with a plague because he didn't know that Sarah was Avram's wife, not his sister. Avram davens for Avimelech. Avimelech is cured and healed. And from this, Chazal deduce that if you daven for someone else who's going through the same challenge... Chalila has the same illness, struggling with the same infertility, going through a similar financial crisis, having similar anxiety, mental health issues. You find somebody with a similar challenge and you daven for them, you're And Rebunam of wonders, but Avi Melech didn't have the same challenge as Avram. So how could Chazal say, you daven ba'oso davar, the same thing, and your answer answered chila. was struck with a plague Chazal tell us that every opening to his body became clogged. He had a blockage in every single opening to his body. Now that included, therefore, infertility, but it also included a lot of other major problems. And that was not the same problem Avraham had. Avraham, in fact, didn't have a fertility problem at all, as we know, he fathered Yeshmo. So how could Chazal learn that Avraham David for Avimelach? and therefore he was answered, Listen to what Revbonah Peshizcha says. Such a magnificent, magnificent interpretation. says he heard it from the Chidush Arim. He says the following. He says the following. Amazing idea. He says, Would it have been in Avram's best interest for Avi Malach to remain sick? There were these Litzoni Ador, who because Sarah spent a few moments secluded with Avi Malach, would later accuse that that boy must be the son of Avi Malach. So, wouldn't it have been, bless you, in Avram's best interest to not daven, to not intercede or intervene on behalf of Avimelech? Let him suffer, let him struggle, and that way no one ever in the future could offer that false accusation. And yet, nevertheless, Avram daven for him. And Chazal, we're learning a different lesson from here. That when you daven for someone, even when it's against your best interest, then ne That's what a Kodesh Baruch who truly loves when your empathy is so strong and powerful that you can't stand to see someone else suffer, and that feeling is so strong that you can't stand to see someone suffer, that you're willing to daven for them, even though by davening for them, it could come back to hurt you, that's, that's the midah of Avram That's the quality of Avram You daven for your competitor, even though their struggle might make you more successful, but you can't stand to see them suffering. Avram down for Avimelech, even though it was in his best interest for Avimelech. This is the Mead of Avram. That's what it means chesed. That's how far his empathy goes. It's going back a parsha, two parshios. But you know, when the malachim come, it's asked, Keshboru sends three malachim. Why? Rashi there tells us. Because every malach can only do one job. So one comes to say Sarah's pregnant. And one comes to destroy stone. And one comes to check on Avram and help him heal. One comes to visit Avram and comfort Avram. But two questions. Number one, when Rashi quotes it, he quotes it out of order. He says it in the order I just told you. To give the besorah tova, give the good news about Sarah, she's pregnant. Number two, destroy Stom. And number three, to visit and comfort Avram. Question number two is that Chazal tell us that the Malach who came to destroy, to comfort Avram, also came to save Lot. What happened to the rule? a Malach can only do one job. I thought that was the rule. Isn't that Malach doing two jobs? So I saw the most magnificent pshat, Skolana Rebbe. He says, the third pshat, why did Rashi give it to you in the order he gave it? It's not chronological. The angel should have first come to visit Avram, then give the good news about Sarah, then destroy stone. Why is the order, the news about Sarah, destroy stone, comfort Avram? So he says the Skolana Rebbe, because you're making a mistake. If you think that that third Malach came to comfort Avram for the bris, because he had a surgery with no anesthesia, he didn't come to do Biker Cholom to comfort him from that. You know what he came to comfort him from? The destruction of Sodom. Avram was in more pain by the thought that human beings that an entire city were being wiped out. He needed to be comforted and visited from that more than the surgery that he had. And therefore that Malach wasn't doing two jobs by saving Lot and comforting Avram. That was the same job, not two jobs you see the degree, the level of empathy that Avram had. Both stone were evil, wicked, and yet Avram still, Ben Fulayi Vecha Avram still can't stand the thought that people are dying so tragically. He needed to be comforted from that thought, even the demise of wicked people. Avi Melech, it would have been in his best interest for Avi to continue to struggle. And yet, he daven for someone, even though it went against his own interests, Because his empathy, his care, his concern, his sensitivity, his capacity to feel the pain of another was so great that it overrode even his own self-interest. That's what you see from this Pasuk. Good. Let's go weiter. Let's keep going. Although I was going to tell you one other thing, but I think it's important to get past the first Pasuk. Maybe. I was going to tell you, I'll just bring up the question. that You'll notice the Torah tells us a similar thing about Yitzchak and Avraham, and it tells us a similar thing about Yishmal and Avraham. The difference is it says Avraham holid es Yitzchak, and when it says about Hagar, it says Yalda, she bore Yitzchak. What's the difference between holid and Yalda? It's a fundamental, very important difference between holid and Yalda, and I'll leave that for you as a question. But the parasha continues you guys got to do some homework too. I'm not doing all the work here. Continuing. Torah tells us, <speaking in Hebrew> Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivka, the daughter of Bisuel, who came from Padan Aram. <speaking in Hebrew> the sister of Lavan, this was her shirach resume. Can you imagine? Her shirach resume is, my father's Besuel, my brother's Lavan. I grew up in Padan Aram. That was her shit resume. I don't know if it had a picture, no picture, or she posing by the well? They brought in the photographer. They photoshopped the image of her leaning on the well. Fine. But we know that Yitzchak and Rivka were barren. They struggled with fertility. Chazal tells us it's one of the most painful, painful challenges that a person could have. Unbearably painful challenges that a person could have. Unbearably. tell you an amazing story, there was the the Leshem, the Balha Leshem. anyone ever hear of the Leshem, was a great great Kabbalist and he had a daughter and his daughter got married to a Levinson and they were married for 17 years with no child, 17 years with no child and the Leshem, this great Kabbalist said to his daughter, travel to Russia, I heard of an expert there, it's the last shot, it's your last chance, so travel to Russia spent three months with this expert, undergoing evaluations and testing and experimental treatments. And finally, the doctor called him in and said, banged on the table and said, you have as much a chance of having a baby as this table. Great bedside manner, apparently, in Russia in that time. And of course, she was distraught, despondent, broken. 17 years of longing and waiting and hoping and wanting and dreaming, all crushed and broken. She came home and her father said, it's good news. And said, it's good news? The doctor told me it's impossible. It can never happen. How could that be good news? And he said to his daughter, my dear daughter, kosman so long as you thought there was a doctor somewhere on the planet earth who could only do this treatment or intervene in this way or adjust this part of your lifestyle, then your dream would come true. You held out hope for him. And your davening was just davening to Hashem, but you really just held that hope to find that doctor. But now that you know, that the best doctor on earth has told you it can't happen, now your davening will be as sincere as it gets because you realize there is only one source. There is only one source, and there's only one who can do it. And so then she davened, and her davening was altogether different because she had given up hope that the solution didn't lay with any man or any person or any treatment, but there was only one solution, which was the rebonah shalom. And of course, I wouldn't be telling you the story unless, nine months later, she had... <laughs> a baby boy, and she named him Yosef Shalom, and he was Rav Yosef Shalom Yashiv. Rav Yashiv, The Leshem's last name was Yashiv, and Rav Yashiv took his mother's last name as his name in gratitude to his grandfather, his maternal grandfather, the Baal Leshem, for inspiring his mother to daven in that way for him to be born. After 17 years of waiting, she Davin from the depths of her heart with no hope for anything else, turning all her trust we're up to in sitter snippets. We didn't get up to it last night. But we're up to the first halalukah. After Adam. don't trust in man. And the Mefarshim say, don't trust in someone. They come from the Adama. They're going back to the Adama. If you trust in man, they can't even take care of themselves. No doctor can prevent themselves from getting sick. No doctor can heal everything. We're all going back to the earth from which we came. So, al when we have our bitachon, when we put our trust, it shouldn't be in man. Of course, we take our initiative, and we go to a doctor, and we listen, and we express our gratitude for their hard work. Of course. But ultimately, and in the end of the day, and where our bitachon and trust should be placed, is al-tiftichu benedivim. So why am I telling you all that? Because in our parsha, Yitzchak and Rivka are suffering from infertility, and the pasuk describes, ha-yatar Yitzchak the Yitzchak is davening to Hashem l'nochach ishto. What does the word l'nochach mean? Opposite. His wife Kiakarai, hi, she's barren. lo Hashem ishto, and Hashem allowed Himself to be, to be appealed to, to be appeased, and Rivka conceived, and Rivka conceived. It worked. It worked. What does it mean that Yitzchak is davening l'nochach ishto? So Rashi tells us, each one stood in their corner and they davened. And they daven from the bottom of the heart. And why did they each have to daven like that from the bottom of their heart? Because they each had to daven like it entirely depended on them. If you're married to a Yitzchak, you say, I'm gonna mumble my davening over here, but really he's the God of I'm relying on him. And if you're a Yitzchak, you say, I'm gonna mumble my davening, but my rebbitzin, she's a tzedekis. She's mamish, unbelievable. So I'm gonna let her davening. She's. I'm gonna ride her coattails. So they each went to their own corner because of the image that they had to daven like there was no one and nothing else and everything depended on the quality, on the, on the, um, how genuine, how authentic, how true their turning to Hashem would be, their turning to Hashem would be, you know, one of the reasons which is suggested of why we don't have mixed seating when we daven, which is the halachic, we just had a child this past week, our Scotland residents talked about the famous case from Michigan, and uh, the whole fight for the Mechitza in America, which is in the Orthodox community no longer a fight, but once upon a time was a very serious fight. So why do we insist on davening separately? And one of the reasons which is suggested, of course it's a halacha, Hashem says it, goes back to the Beis Hamikdash and it applies within a shul. But one of the reasons which is suggested is because if you allow family to daven, so the husband might say, I'm going to check the stocks, she's got this covered. Nobody says to Hillam like my wife. The wife might say, I'm going to sit here and, and, uh, and, and my mind will wander because my hu- in davening we have to realize that we're davening for our family, but we're on our own in davening. Kiddush Baruch invites and welcomes and wants each of us to daven, not leaning on the other. You got this. You remember the family's birthdays and I remember the... What I, no, you've each got responsibilities and you each have to step up and you each have to take care of it. And that's the image of Rashi, that they each went to a separate corner because they each had to daven like the balalashim's advice to his daughter, without which we wouldn't have had a Rav Yashiv in our, in our time. So that's Rashi's pshat. They each went to their own corner. Who's davening is holier? Rivka or Yitzchak? Yes, Chazal tell us, ain't a doma tfila of a saddik ben Roshel, or Tzadik ben Tzadik, which is entirely counterintuitive. If you'd ask me whose davening is holier, I'd say, Rivka, you come out of a house of a besuo, you grow up next door, your bedroom is next to a Lavan, and you come out at Tzadikas, your davening is going to be even holier than a Yitzchak. Mm-hmm. So I saw once a beautiful interpretation, I forgot where I saw it. I forgot where I saw it. I saw a beautiful interpretation that, you know, when you're the daughter of a Russia, on the one hand, it's extraordinary that you emerge at Sudeikis. On the other hand, you look at your father and you want to run the other way. But when you're the son of an Avram, you can never live up to it. How many children of great people go off the derech? because they don't even want to compete. They don't even want to challenge themselves because they think they can't even reach the toenail of their father. Why bother? There's a whole study of second generation of survivors in this area because you're going to come home and complain that you fell off your bike and skimmed your knee and your parents are going to feel bad for you when they went through Auschwitz. So there's a whole psychology of second generation, not everybody, and I'm not an expert in it, but there are people who studied it, who talk about when you're at tzaddik ben tzaddik, it's much, much harder to stay or it's much harder to become a tzaddik ben tzaddik. You can become a benoni ben tzaddik. You can become a rasha ben tzaddik. But to be a tzaddik ben tzaddik, that is really, really hard. And that's why it's counterintuitive, but Yitzchak, who became a tzaddik ben tzaddik, is in some ways even more, even more impressive. What does it mean, l'nochach ishto, opposite? So Rasha said the images of the two opposite corners. The Rashbam says, he davened b'shvil ishto, for his wife. What does that mean, for his wife? Is that condescending? Is it disparaging? He for his wife, like she needed him, the big Yitzchak, what does that mean? So, on the one hand, you could simply say, because she's the one who needed to conceive. She's the one who needed to carry a baby. He was dominating for his wife for the prayer that she would conceive. The Meshechachma of Mer Simchadzvin says, no, very practically speaking, much like with Avram, Yitzchak knew that the problem, the fertility challenge, did not lie with him. And how did he know that? How did he know that? Yitzchak. How did Yitzchak know that? Because when Yitzchak gets his name, The Torah tells us, "Lizaro acharav. Yitzchak is given a promise that he will be the continuity of Avram. So he knew he would have children. He wasn't worried for himself. For whom was he davening? L'nochach ishto. Because he knew his mother had challenges and his father therefore found Hagar. So if it wouldn't work out that Rivka would be the matriarch of his children, but he knew zaro acharav, he was going to have children. So therefore his tefillos were "Lanochach ishto, these tefilos were on behalf of whom? On behalf of... On behalf of his wife. On behalf of his wife. Good. The amshanov has a different shot. I'm grateful to uh, my friend, Rabbi Mirzov, who shared this with me. Rabbi Yaakov Dovid of Amshanov says on this possek, avinu makom rak ishto. He only had a place to daven, like opposite, staring at his wife. what's the image? It's the opposite of what we said a moment ago. It's a beautiful image. Yitzchak is davening, and he says, you know that I'm a tzaddik? I grew up in the house of Avram. But Hashem, you know why you should answer us? Because of her. You see her. Do you know where she came from? Do you know what she emerged to be? Do you understand the virtue and the merits of my wife? The Russia, the evil home she came out of? So Hashem, don't answer me because of me, because I grew up in the house of a tzaddik. It's no big deal that I became a tzaddik. But her... Lenochach ishto, he says the opposite pshat. Lenochach ishto, that Yitzchak is invoking the merit of Rivka to suggest just how incredible, just how extraordinary she is, and that's why Hashem, and that's why Hashem should answer. Okay, let's make it past the second possible. Even though there's so much more to talk about, you want a sukkah? Ayetar iter, is a pitchfork, just like a pitchfork turns over the hay, so too we can change Hashem's mind. It's a fundamental question about tefillah from here. I'll pose this to you again as a question. So I'll give you two pieces of homework. You look like you people can handle it. Two pieces of homework. Vayetar, a pitchfork, it turns it over. Why would I want to turn over Hashem's mind? This is a classic question. I'll leave it to you to talk about and think about. If we believe everything God does is for our best by definition, He is infinite, I'm finite. He's omnipotent, I'm limited. He has the broadest vision, He's all knowing, He can see it all, and I'm limited by what I can see and where I am. So if Hashem determines something is in my best interest, why would I want to change His mind? Why would I want to turn over like a pitchfork that turns over so to tfilah functions like a pitchfork, I can change or transform Hashem's mind? Why would I want to change His mind? If the premise and the assumption is that everything Hashem does is for my best, then whatever is happening to me, whatever I am enduring is for my best. Why would I want to even try to change Hashem's mind? It's a very important and a significant question with a lengthy answer, not for now. So Hashem answers her, and she becomes pregnant. And now she has twins? And she says, whoa, what's going on? Why me? She goes to inquire of Hashem. And Hashem tells her, don't worry, you're feeling all this kicking, a whole commotion going on inside you. It's because you have twins. There's two nations, the fathers of two nations, who will ultimately be separated. The might will pass from one to the other, and the older one will serve the younger one. And what is Rivka's reaction? Oh, that's great news, fantastic. Now I understand that. Now it's all good. Now I can live with the rest of my pregnancy. And Mephoshim, i bothered and wonder, as you may be, and I am, what in the world... Was that answer? I don't understand. She's bothered. She feels all this activity. Hashem says, "No, no, don't worry. There's twins." Oh, there's twins. Two nations. I'm good. What is going on? What is going on there? So this amazing. Kliyakar. If you have your your, uh, if anyone still brings a mikros kedos, you can look at the kliyakar. But Hashem. She goes and she asks. She gets the answer. She has a 3D ultrasound. She sees both twins. I don't know who they look like. We'll figure that out. We know who Who, uh, Yitzchak looked like Avram. We don't know who these twins look like. So the Kliyakr says the following. Kliyakr says, You know what she was concerned about? I'm good to go. I come from Avram and Sarah. My genes are pretty good. My DNA is pretty good. I'm confident in what I'm going to create. But look at her DNA. Look where she comes from. Look at her resume. Check out her yichus. So he says, just like my father, who was great from Hagar, got a yishmael, what if I'm going to get out of her? She comes from Besu'l-Lavan. Who knows what I'm going to get? So maybe that's the reason that she's barren, so that I don't have to endure having Ishmael. So when she feels the kicking, we know Rashi quotes, she walks by the base medrash. One Yaakov is trying to get out. She walks by the base of Zarah, and Esav's trying to get out. She says, She feels kicking in both places. She doesn't know that there's twins. So she says, uh-oh, on the one hand, the kid's kicking when I walk by the base of Madrash. And that is a good sign. That he must have gotten from his father, from Yitzchak. But my kid is also kicking when I walk by the base of Zara. Uh oh! What was the point of all my davening if this kid got the genetics also of my side of the family? And that's what she's told. Don't worry. Shnei goyim bevetnech zerebbi v'antin antoninus v'ha'wilat filas shakan esav yatsav imena zera kasha kaantoninus v'shar giri tzelik ma'ashen kein b'yishmal u'b'ze at tova mehagar. Hagar only got a yishmal, and from yishmal we know what we got. We're still dealing with it today. But from Esau came Antoninos, came a convert. From Esau's line came conversion back into the Jewish people. So yes, right now kicking to a base of Otozorah, but there are two. The Kliyakr basically says the following. It says says, Rivka's fear was that she was pregnant with one child. One child with multiple personality disorder. Who on the one hand wanted to get out in the base medrash, and on the other hand wanted to get out. Why do you want to get out when you pass the base medrash? What's the, we just learned the daf yomi, those learning the daf, nida. We just learned, what's the baby doing in the womb? Learning with the malach. So why would he want to get out in the base medrash? There's no way that whoever's the rebbe of the rosh Shiva of that base medrash is not going to be better than a malach. So you know what they say from here? When your chavrusah's ace of, it doesn't matter how good your rebbe is, you gotta get to a new yeshiva. Your is <laughs> even more important than your rebbe. By the way, that, that gemara, the Debrezina Rav, in his chuvas quotes that Gemara that we're learning in the, in the womb of the Malach when he was asked if you're allowed to schedule an induction for pregnancy, can you schedule an induction? So he says, if it's medically mandated, absolutely. The doctor says, you need to be induced early, for whatever reason, a hundred percent. What if it's not medically mandated, it's just that you really like that birthday? Or the bris would really be convenient if it fell out on that day? Or you really want to work around the upcoming holiday weekend? So you're going to induce for that reason. So then he says, if it's not medically mandated, then it's Aser. And he gives two reasons. He says, number one, when you're in childbirth, you're in a, you're a it's a life-threatening situation. So when that happens from Hashem, because it's time to give birth, of course. But for you to induce a life-threatening situation, electively, you shouldn't. But then he brings a second reason. You know what the second reason is? Bitl Torah. What's the Bitl Torah? That the husband has to leave Kaila to take his wife to the hospital to be induced? Now, the bittel Torah is the baby in the womb, he says, who's learning with the Malach, why would you want to cut that learning short? So if, medically, the doctor says, you got to cut, cut the chavrusa. we got to get to the hospital, fine. But for you, because you like the birthday, or you like the Bristol for all that day, You're like it's convenient with the holiday weekend, we don't, we don't engage in bittel Torah for that reason. He quotes that reason. So says the Kliyakar, she thought that she had one child with multiple personalities, and she's relieved to find out That her children have convictions and they are consistent. And even though one of those children has the wrong convictions, but if children have convictions you can redirect them. But if you're wishy-washy and you flip and you blow at the wind and you can be convinced of anything, that's when we're in trouble. If you at least have convictions, then you can be taught the right thing and you'll follow in the right way. But if you have no convictions, then you're in trouble. The Gemara in Pesachim on quotes of Yosef, who each year Shavuos would tell his uh, his household to create a beautiful meal, a lavish meal with delicacies and treats, and he said the reason, because he said, if not for this day, namely the day that we got the Torah, kama Yosef ika b'shukah. So the simple translation is, he was saying, if not for the receiving the Torah, I'd be like every other Yosef, I'd be like every other Joe in the shuk. But the Balay Musar say no, that's not what he was saying, kama Yosef ika b'shukah. If not for Torah that creates a unified personality within me, that gives me convictions to stay true to and strong to, Kama Yosef, I'd be made up of multiple personalities. I'd act differently when I'm around different people, and I'd think different things depending on who I just listened to and who I just spent time with. And so therefore, Rivka was concerned that there was one child with multiple personalities, but when she is convinced that it's two children, at least they have convictions, someone who has convictions, those convictions can be steered, those convictions can be can be turned around. Okay, so who comes out? We know. The first one's coming out with a ruddy complexion, and they name him Esav. Who else comes out with a ruddy complexion? Who else in Tanakh do we know has a ruddy admoni, the same description? We've talked about this in the past, we won't get into it now, but, some bold commentaries point out that being admoni, having a ruddy, reddish complexion... If you have red hair, by the way, studies show... I have a child with red hair who once needed uh, reddish hair, who once needed anesthesia. She had surgery, um, she had broken her leg. And do you know the studies show that you need more anesthesia for a redhead? The redheads are filled with such energy and vigor. Anesthesiologist studies, I'm not making this up, you can Google it must be true you can Google it <laughs> so we know that the, a redhead again it's a generalization but admonia reddish reddish complexion is more energy enthusiasm vigor dynamism all wonderful positive qualities Esav has it, Yaakov is in time Yoshev Olam Yaakov can sit and steig and he has zitzfleisch and he doesn't have to move he can sit and he can focus and Esav if the Torah would have had this terminology, Rashi would have said, what does it mean, Perish, ADHD? <laughs> That's what Rashi would have said. Asaf he didn't just have ADD, he was in high definition ADD. He had attention deficit hyper disorder. couldn't sit still, he needed a standing desk, he needed more frequent breaks, he needed, he couldn't take it. He was admoni. And so was David Melech, admoni. So David HaMelech takes that and challenges it to become the greatest warrior of the Jewish people, the greatest king who pours his passion into the poetry of Tehillim. And Esav becomes Esav HaRasha. And Rav Hirsch says, you know why? Because Yitzhak and Rivka made a mistake. I'm not saying this, I couldn't say it. You could stand near me, lightning on strike. I'm simply quoting others. They said they made a mistake because they tried to put Yaakov and Esav in the same class and have the same expectations and put them in the same box, and turned to Esav, and every day Esav would come home from school with a note from the teacher of how much trouble he got in, and they would say, why can't you just be like Yaakov? Why can't you just sit quietly and listen and learn and be well behaved? And Esav couldn't put it into words. I don't know why, but I just can't. I can't sit still. I can't stop moving around. I need longer to take tests. I need a break. I need a standing desk. Esav couldn't put it into words, and his parents didn't realize they needed individual attention, individual education. David got that individual attention, and when you do, you become a David Amelach. And, and if you don't, and your whole life you're just not measuring up, and you're a failure, and you're an embarrassment, and you're underachiever, you become an Asaf. And that's not on Asav or David; it's on Yitzchak and Rivka. It's on us. Again, a lot more to say here. These are not my original thoughts, but that same word Admoni describes David Amelach as it does describe Asaf. And then, ya- then Yaakov comes out. He's holding on to. A cave, Asav, Yaakov. He's holding the heel of his brother. They call him Yaakov. They grow up, and only when they grow up do we see their personalities. Asav is manipulative, he's a hunter. And Yaakov is Ishtam Yoshev O'alem. That word Tam, it can throw us off. Where do we think of that word Tam from the most? The four sons, the Haggadah. And how do we think of the Tam in the Haggadah? We do not think of him in an impressive way. He's simple. He's a very simple son. He's unsophisticated. He's simple. He can't articulate a question. He's very simple. So I saw Harebi Milublin, Perisha Dabash and Yoda Ketam Hu who Tam. Mish Yoda Ketam Ramim, Venom Ramma Koray Ishtam. You see, if you know how to be a trickery, you're a Tam. But if you know how and you don't do it, you're an Ishtam. Yaakov Avinu, Yada Ketam Ramim, Sharihita Latzma Shakar Shabibe, based love on Nag Belovim, Minag Ramos. Yaakov knew, he was street smart. He knew how to operate, but he chose not to. Yaakov wasn't a tam. He was an ish tam. He knew it, but he knew also how to hold it back and not do it. The Shlach Kadosh of Yishai Levi Haravitz, writes, he says, ish says, <laughs> Of all the wonderful qualities, of all the amazing things you could say about Yaakov, you know what was on top of his shidduch resume? Ishtam. We shouldn't dismiss. It kind of goes back to the whole Yitzchak and the redigging the same wells and giving them the same names. You know, we think that today you have to be able to use big fancy words, axiological and ontological, that today you have to be able to scholarship and academia, that today you have to spotlight and bright light and followers and fans. Yakov is an ishtam. Sometimes there's greatness in simplicity. In the simplicity. And the shlosh says, the fact that the Torah tells us this is his greatest quality, tells us everything we need to know about what the Torah values in a person, namely, being an, ish, being an ishtam. Being an ishtam. So I want to tell you something amazing about, about, uh, ooh. Where does the time go? Ooh. Okay, I'll tell you a couple other cute vortloch and end with one more thing. So anyway, you know the rest of the Parsha. We don't have to do the whole overview of the Parsha. <laughs> you got it. You got it. But the pasik says, avi beinav kim What does that mean? Pasuk yud. Pasuk yud yud Top of page 136. What's going on here? Rivka has recruited Yaakov. Again, we've spoken about in the past. I'm not going to talk now. Why did, how could Yitzchak have made such a mistake, thinking that Esav was the one? He underestimated Yaakov. How did he underestimate Yaakov? Rivka got it. So, their debate, really, the Malbum says, is Yitzchak wanted an earner. Rivka wanted a learner. <laughs> Yitzchak said, Esav knows how to hunt, he knows how to provide, he knows how to take care. If this whole experiment my father started is going to continue, we need an earner. And Rivka said, relax. We need a learner. Now the truth is, Yaakov became an earner-learner. He knew how to do both. Those with grandchildren or children, who know this bizarre language I'm using right now, (laughs) which is absolute bizarre language, which isn't part of our Masorah. I'm embarrassed to be using it. I'm embarrassed to be in it, but we've talked about in the past. What was the debate between Yitzchak and Rivka? How could Yitzchak have been so? How could Yitzhak have been so wrong in putting his faith and trust and thinking Esav was his con- continuation? How could he have misjudged or underestimated Yaakov so much? But that helps us understand the rest of the parsha because Rivka is busy not trying to. I can you imagine the pillow talk the night after Yitzchak realizes Rivka is the one who schemed the whole thing to fool him with the brachas. I don't know how the marriage continues after that. But the answer is, Rivka every night tried to convince Yitzchak, I'm telling you, you're betting on the wrong horse. We love our two sons, we tell them we love them equally, and probably we do somewhere. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Yaakov's the one. And Yitzchak says, no, 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 Yaakov doesn't have it. He's tam, he's an ishtam. He's too simple. He's too trusting. He's too believing. He, he lives in the ivory tower of the Beis Medrash. Our people, he'll never survive Golis. How will he ever learn how to live through the pogroms and the exterminations and the exile? We can't rely on a Yaakov to take this people through that. We need an Esav, a hunter who knows how to be manipulative, who can operate in the field, do has street smarts. They were having this debate every night. And Rivka every night was telling him, you're underestimating our little Yaakov. And if you don't believe me, I've come to the conclusion this is the only way to show it to you. Yaakov, come over here. We need to show your father that you, ASAF has nothing on you. That even when you're Kol Kol Yaakov, you can have Yadayim, Yidei, Esav. That you will, when you need to form an IDF, and when you'll need to take up weapons, and you'll need to defend yourselves and to found a Jewish homeland, even though Kol Kol Yaakov, there's never been a bigger supporter of Talmud Torah in the history of the Jewish people than the state of Israel, than the government of Israel. The finances of the government of Israel, the Kol Kol Yaakov Eretz Israel, the yeshivas, the kolim in Israel today are greater than at any point in all of Jewish history. And the biggest supporter who is financing that kol kol Yaakov is the state of Israel. Make no mistake about it. With all the people who want to pin them as hating religion and so on and so forth. It is by far the biggest supporter of Talmud Torah in the history of Israel. Our kol kol Yaakov is resounding and echoing strongly. But, Rivka was right. When we need it, we have Yadai de When we need to, we have those Yadai de to protect our people and to do what we need. Rivka was manipulating, was with Yaakov, manipulating the situation to prove to Yitzchak, Esav's got nothing on Yaakov, he's got it, he could do it. So in this context, in this context, Yaakov is hesitating, and he says, "But what are you talking about? My brother is like a hairy beast, my brother's a hairy guy, and I'm an ish I daven by the Ashkenazim. There's no way. Wulaiy musheni avi. Maybe my father will feel me. kim sateya." He's gonna feel me, and I'll be a mocker in his eyes. He's gonna figure out this whole facade, this whole fraud. He's gonna see through it, and then I'm gonna get a curse, not a bracha. And I need a bracha. So, Rav Naftali of Rapsches, the who says, "Ula Musheni avi." Is not talking about Yitzchak. "Ula Musheni avi" is "avi shebashamayim is asai. What if Hashem sees that I'm a fraud, not a faker? That I shuffle so hard in davening when I'm at shul, that I purport to be this religious, virtuous person when I'm in public, but really in private, that really, I'm somebody. That's how we should read the pasuk. Says the Rosh Sir. that it's not just our physical father, but that we should live our lives. A person should should realize ulayim Where did he get that from? That language, yimusheni is. is we, Chazal, encourage us to be memashmish Bamasov, to examine, to feel our own actions. avi, Maybe my Father in heaven is going to feel me and figure out who I am. I was gonna tell you this whole beautiful, incredible vort from the Rav that I don't have time for, so I'll end with one last thing, which is a beautiful kotzker. On the parasha, a beautiful kotzker. Vay'ach Yaakov, page 138 what happens Yaakov gets the bracha from Yitzchak. he pulled it off that's why Yitzhak and Rivka can stay married that's why not only is there a pillow talk comfortable but Yitzchak says to Rivka you were right I should have listened to you all along you were right Yaakov pulled it off look at that our little boy Yaakov who knew he had it in him you were right all along Yitzchak finished giving the bracha to Yaakov. Yato yato Yaakov. Yaakov left Aviv from the face of his father Aviv. The ace of Achiv ba mitzaydo, and his brother Esav came from where? From his hunt, from hunting. Says the Katskarebe that at the moment that we leave Aviv, when we walk away from kedusha, you know what fills that vacuum? Esav Achiv ba. When we are Yatso Yatsa MiYakov, Esav Achiv Ba, either we are living lifestyles and promoting holiness, or in the vacuum and the absence of holiness, it will be filled with the mentality and the attitude and the lifestyle of an Esav. And that's why he says the Katsgareba. I don't personally have this minhag, but many do. That on Motzei Shabbos, when the kedusha of Shabbos leaves, in order to fend off what could be the the koach of an Esav. We say, V'yitain Lecha. Where does V'yitain Lecha come from? It's our parsha. that's the bracha that Yitzchak gave to Yaakov. When Shabbos leaves, and in the vacuum of the holiness of Shabbos, the challenges, the struggle of the weekday, the Esav could come, in order to fend off the Esav, we say, V'yitain Lecha. Some have the meaning of saying, V'yitain Lecha, which is exactly the bracha that Yitzchak gave to Yaakov. A lot more to talk about. Wishing everyone a wonderful day. Feel free to get a coffee or pastry at the BRS Cafe on your way out.